So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a CanadaLand supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Your days of pushing around Albertans with impunity just ended. Albertans are patient and we're fair-minded, but we've had enough of your campaign of defamation and double standards. We have 
been targeted by a foreign-funded campaign of special interests seeking to landlock Canadian energy. Albertans have decided that we will no longer passively accept the campaign of defamation against the industry that has helped to create one of the most prosperous and generous societies on earth. Jason Kenney is the new Premier of Alberta. And after four years of NDP government, he's got an agenda that could reshape the country and, according to some, even the world. Kenny plans to set up a $30 million taxpayer-funded war room to attack oil patch critics. He wants to push oil companies to sue environmentalists. Kenny will lift the cap on oil sands emissions, cancel the carbon tax, and is threatening to cut off oil and gas to the entire province of British Columbia. And he will hold a referendum on ending transfer payments to the rest of Canada if pipelines aren't built. That wouldn't have any constitutional force, but it contains the implicit threat of Albertan separatism. And if you look back at the last 150 years, none of this is really surprising. Jason Kenney is just the latest face in a struggle that begins before the oil sands were even in operation. And governments have gone to even greater lengths to make the oil sands viable, including almost setting off a hundred nuclear weapons on a huge chunk of the province. Recently, the collapse in the price of oil has caused immense pain to Albertans. And there's an anger directed at Ottawa, other provinces, and the global environmental movement. But this didn't come out of nowhere. This is history repeating itself. Canadians have been stuck in a cycle of anger and recrimination for a century and a half. And there's no end in sight. Alberta oil sands, or tar sands, have become one of the most controversial places on our planet. Even the name itself is endlessly debated. Depending on who you ask, it's either an economic dynamo that's powering our prosperity, or it's a carbon bomb waiting to go off and doom our entire planet. Yes, the oil patch has become the latest arena in our continual fight over Canadian Confederation, but it's also ground zero in the most important global debate of our times. How do we power modern society? And will we fry up our planet before we figure it out? So how did this frosty piece of land in northeastern Alberta become the pivot point around all of this? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. Canada is a country full of regional tensions, but almost none are as intense as the strains between the West and everyone else. I wanted to know why Westerners were so angry all the time. I just could not believe the rage that any mention of federal dealings with provincial resources evoked. That's Mary Janigan, who wrote a book that traced the deep roots of Canadian resource battles and Western alienation called Let the Eastern Bastards Freeze in the Dark. When Canada was born in 1867, the majority of the land that would become the Prairie Provinces was owned by the Hudson's Bay Company. 
It seems unbelievable to me still that the Hudson's Bay Company owned large chunks of the West, Rupert's Land and the Northwest Territory. So in the 1860s, Canada arranged to buy that territory for 300,000 British pounds from the Hudson Bay Company and effectively get rid of its ownership. It was also the legal administrator for those territories. This was private land that was sold to Canada for a price. Those lands were essential to the project that John A. Macdonald had for the country, namely build a railroad, displace indigenous inhabitants, and settle the prairies with European immigrants. Ottawa was a bit frantic because it was trying to get the West clear of inhabitants, or inhabitants it considered not the best inhabitants, in other words, the indigenous peoples out of the way, put a railway across the West, and bring in settlers from other countries. So Ottawa agreed to a deal to create a province of Manitoba. But unlike every other province in Canada, including British Columbia, which joined in 1871, Sir Johnny Macdonald kept resource control. So by keeping resource control, he kept control of the water, the land, the forests, the minerals, the oil, the gas, everything. The federal government surmised that since they had bought the land, they were entitled to those resource revenues for themselves. Louis Rial, the leader of the Métis Nation, became the first of many Western leaders to fight the federal government over resources, a fight that he lost. Louis Rial knew he read to the legislature the powers of a province. He knew. He knew what he wanted. He wanted resource control. And that's when the drama began. So they create Manitoba, no resource control. The story was the same for Alberta and Saskatchewan. In 1905, Ottawa creates Alberta and Saskatchewan. No resource control either. Railways going across the West. Hundreds of thousands of settlers, indigenous people pushed onto reserves. It, it was a very difficult time. And the governments of these three provinces were furious almost all the time. They could see their timber going up. They could see their coal disappearing. And they wanted the revenues from those. As the Western provinces demanded control over their resources, the rest of the country fought back. Because you see, the other provinces assumed that if Ottawa paid $300,000, these were their residents' tax dollars. So all the other provinces in Canada claimed that they owned the West resources. This was the situation that it was like lighting a match. And that match really never went out. The tensions between provinces would be familiar to Canadians today. The West causing a stink about their resources, Ontario and Quebec too enamored with themselves to care, the Maritimes complaining that the country should focus on their poverty, and BC poking Alberta in the eye. At one spectacular conference, a FedProv conference that blew apart after World War I, British Columbia was one of the big spoilers. It said, no way. The Maritimes got together and said, we're in worse shape. 
we own these resources, we want revenues, the squabbling, the language. There were moments people were walking out of conferences. For decades and decades, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba were treated totally differently than all of the other provinces. But in the 1930s, they were finally given control over their resources. But their resentment would linger for far longer. It, it was an amazing, amazing struggle. And it has sifted into the Western identity today. These epic battles between the Western provinces and Ottawa were mostly fought over timber and coal. But at the beginning of the 20th century, oil and gas began to be drilled in Alberta. It wasn't in the oil sands. These were conventional oil strikes with drills and gushers. And it was one gusher in particular that would change the course of Alberta's history. For three decades, oil companies have been drilling with only limited success, searching searching, searching. Then in February 1947, 20 miles south of Edmonton, near the little town of Leduc, Alberta, Imperial Leduc No. 1 struck oil. Leduc No. 1 ushered in an oil bonanza. After the discovery, other companies were soon in the area, drilling and bringing in wells. During the first year, wells came into production on an average of one every nine days, and almost half a million barrels of crude were produced. Investment, especially from American companies, began to pour in, and it wasn't long until their gaze fell upon a patch of land in the boreal forest of northeastern Alberta, the Athabasca Tar Sands. It's the largest deposit of bitumen in the world. Now, bitumen isn't what comes to mind when most people think of oil. When it's hot, it's a sludgy molasses, and in the cold, it's something closer to stone. And in the Athabasca region of Alberta, that bitumen is mixed with sand, clay, water, and other impurities that make it extremely hard to extract. Once the first petroleum booms hit North America in the late 1800s, people knew about the tar sands. But they couldn't figure out how to separate the bitumen from all of that other stuff. Opposite to most oil deposits, where the discovery is the thing, this was known to be there. There just didn't seem to be a way to economically turn it into a commodity that was worth extracting in any, in, at any volume. That's Chris Turner, an author and journalist who wrote a book called The Patch, which is an overview and history of the oil sands industry. We reached him in Calgary. For decades, researchers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers of all stripes had tried and failed to turn the oil sands into a viable venture. By the 1950s, they were starting to think up creative ideas to get that oil out of the ground. The most audacious idea was called Project Cauldron. A geologist from an American oil company had an idea, dig underneath the oil sands, place around 100 thermonuclear weapons, and kaboom! Now all that sticky solid bitumen should be a boiling liquid stew that can be easily drilled out using normal methods. Now some people had their doubts, of course. One oil sands veteran said, quote, If it does not turn the whole deposit into a burning inferno, it is almost sure to fuse it into a solid mass of semi-glass or coke. But despite the pesky naysayers, the Alberta government jumped on the plan, and the Federal Mines Department gave it the okay. 
before they could get around to nuking a good chunk of northeastern Alberta, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, and nukes became a bit more taboo. The plan was eventually shelved, but the technology to get at that bitumen was soon developed. By the 1960s, Sun Oil, an American firm, joined up with the Albertan Canadian governments to finally develop the oil sands. And in 1967, they had a big coming out party. We are gathered on this occasion for a ceremony which marks a great forward step in the development of the oil industry. They have this, you know, this opening ceremony where they have this kind of self-inflated dome similar to domed stadiums temporarily set up and inside there's all the, you know, the big podium and the huge logo and it kind of looks like a still from Citizen Kane or something like that. This is a historic day for the province of Alberta. It is fitting that we gathered here today should dedicate this plant not merely to the production of oil, but to the continual progress and enrichment of mankind. So to this end, and with this purpose in view, I now declare this great Canadian oil sands complex to be officially open. The, the tagline on the Great Canadian Oil Sands logo is Man Develops His World. You know, that, that kind of sum, summarizes the philosophy there, is that that's what human enterprise and democracy and capitalism are for, is go out and find something valuable and turn it into a commodity and make a bunch of money and create jobs and make, make cars go. The oil sands were open for business, and Alberta would never be the same again. The first years of the oil sands were hard. Certainly when you talk to people who who lived through the whole thing, it seemed like it was taking forever to get anywhere and you know, forever in danger of, of you know, the plug being pulled, so to speak. There were two great enemies, the cold and the bitumen itself. None of the equipment is ready for the harshness of the climate and the intensity of the, and, and coarseness and abrasiveness of the material itself, so they have these huge excavators and, and, and um, conveyor belts and all this other stuff that keep breaking because the basically just the you know, viscosity and, and friction and everything else created by this unique substance, this oil sand stuff. The tar sands are essentially a giant mine. Equipment from the coal industry was ported over, but it would break down within days. In the winter, office workers on site would have to scrape the ice off of their desks in the morning. But all of that started to look worthwhile in the early 1970s when the OPEC embargo began and oil prices shot through the roof. The extraordinary increase in the price of petroleum products has caused the most dramatic reordering of wealth in Canadian history. The new west has become rich, and the old east, central Canada, has discovered it's dependent on the vast petroleum resources of the west for its economic well-being. The oil sands were still in their infancy, but Alberta was also producing a good amount of conventional oil, and those old resource battles between the provinces and the federal government would start anew. On one side was Alberta Premier Peter Lougheed, who saw oil and gas development as a major piece of Alberta's future. On the other was Pierre Trudeau, who saw the oil as a national resource that should benefit all Canadians. The fight between them marked a new height for Western alienation. Here's Pierre Trudeau on the topic. What's the answer? 
It's either to break up the country and say it's too big and it can't be run by one central government, or it's to say, well, let's pull up our sleeves and not just gripe and bitch, but get in there and, and make sure that we are taking the decisions. The feds imposed price controls on oil and gas that hurt Alberta producers. They created a crown corporation, Petro-Canada, that was given favorable treatment. And Alberta fired back by cutting oil supplies. The envy is persistent. It's mostly centered on resource wealth. Don't forget that until Leduc, the western provinces were, felt that they were poor cousins. Now they're wealthy and now they feel they're being discriminated against because they have resources and they feel unappreciated. To some extent, that is true. Despite these battles, the governments of Alberta, Canada, and even Ontario were pouring in money to continue to develop the tar sands. Along with private money, they started a second big oil sands operation, which would eventually become Syncrude. The fights over the National Energy Program eventually subsided, but the investment in the oil sands wouldn't pay off until the 1990s. That was when oil companies tried to convince governments to change the royalty and tax regimes. You go back to the, when Eric Newell at Syncrude in the early 90s first started going to policymakers to say, you know, we could really use some rethinking of the, the taxation structures and royalty structures and all this kind of stuff. Stories from that time are of, you know, trying to get federal politicians to pay attention to a thing that they you know, almost never heard of before and, and couldn't find on a map. And... They were eventually able to succeed, and investments in tar sands became much more attractive. The first boom came soon after, and it was bigger than anyone could have anticipated. It absolutely exceeded the wildest dreams, even of, I mean, so Eric Newell, who was the CEO of Syncrude, if I'm recalling correctly at the time, who was the head of the task force that was going around to, to politicians saying, you need to, you need to change the way we finance these things so it can take off. And I, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was something like they thought, you know, maybe $20 billion invested over 25 years or something like that from the mid-90s onward might happen if they you know, sort of redrew these, the, the lines uh, on it all. And instead, it was $20 billion a year within a decade. And, that, and it was that combination of, of, one, this was the sort of right funding formula or investment formula, and suddenly the price of oil you know, doubled and doubled again and, and cleared $100, and the sky was the limit. By the early 2000s, Fort McMurray had turned into a boom town. People from everywhere were moving there. Time I remember, you know, going to, you know, the grocery store, the superstore at one point around, I think it would have been about like Christmas 2005, and they only had one till open because they literally couldn't keep enough people on staff um, to keep tills open because everyone was going, going north and getting, you know, double, triple, quadruple the wages. Meanwhile, in Fort Mac, groceries didn't fly off the shelves because there weren't even shelves to begin with. You know, everyone in Fort McMurray remembers how, you know, the grocery stores and the Walmart and stuff, they, they weren't even stocking shelves anymore. They would just kind of unload pallets in the middle of the aisles and people would just pull stuff off pallets because no one could get, you know, enough goods to keep up with the demand. Politicians and the media largely saw the oil sands as a good news story. It was an engine of wealth for the whole country. But that consensus wouldn't last long. Soon it would threaten to tear apart our politics and capture the world's attention. April 2008, big spring snowstorm, which is very common on the prairie. 
And what wound up happening was this, these huge tailing spawns, which are full of the all the stuff that gets washed away when you when you when you separate out the oil from from the from the ore. They normally have these noise cannons deployed around them that just kind of go off periodically to make low booming sounds that tell waterfowl don't come here. And because of the snowstorm, Sincrude had not deployed theirs yet. And so a bunch of migrating ducks landed on the pond. The tailings ponds are covered in big floating mats of bitumen. And around 1,600 ducks who landed there got covered in that incredibly sticky substance. The ducks land on the mats. Their feathers, which are highly absorbent, suck up the uh, bitumen and it causes them to sink and die. And this wound up basically the guy who was the, um, the, the regional wildlife office, the provincial government, took a few pictures just to document what was happening. They tried to do a rescue effort, but there was basically, you know, of the 1,500 ducks that landed on the pond, there was only like literally like a handful that they could even get out of the water and and only, I think, two or three actually got rehabilitated. The photos were seen around the world. Sincrude and the government were quick to point out that many more ducks are killed by hunters in Alberta every month. But the images were powerful. The lasting impact turned out to be symbolic. It became the, you know, in a sense, the calling card when environmental groups began getting more kind of organized and sustained in their opposition to the industry. They had this really powerful image, and you could juxtapose the, you know, those with the huge mines and, and, and the giant trucks, and it was very uh, easy to make a compelling case that this, this looked like you know, an industry that had grown out of control and, 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 and was doing horrific damage. And from then on, any time birds got caught in tailings ponds, it became a global news story. Alberta Environment is conducting a broad investigation into waterfowl landings on several tailings ponds at oil sands companies in northern Alberta. At least 230 birds have been euthanized after landing on a Sincrude tailings pond last night. But now investigations are underway at Suncor and Shell as well. Now it was over two years ago when the world took notice first of 1,600 birds dying on a Sincrude's tailings pond. This was the first big flashpoint in the war for the oil sands. The next was not far behind. When Barack Obama was inaugurated president, climate change activists were hopeful that finally something could be done about the problem. They went into the Copenhagen climate talks optimistic. As the world's largest economy and as the world's second largest emitter, America bears our responsibility to address climate change. And we intend to meet that responsibility. But the talks collapsed. Obama's cap-and-trade bill died in the Senate, and climate change activists were despondent. Soon, they found something to rally around. A company was looking to build an extension of a pipeline into the oil sands. Jim Hansen, America's foremost climate scientist, wrote an open letter claiming that if all of the oil in the tar sands was released, it would be a tipping point in the fight against climate change. Especially because extracting oil from the tar sands is more carbon intensive than other methods. That pipeline, Keystone XL, became the global focal point in the fight against climate change. Here's Bill McKibben, one of the most prominent environmental activists in the U.S., talking about the massive resistance to the pipeline. 
You know, this has turned into the biggest civil disobedience action in the environmental movement in a generation. And the reason is that this is this tar sands in Alberta is a big deal. It's the second largest pool of carbon on Earth after the oil fields of Saudi Arabia. Jim Hansen of NASA, who was arrested today, really the world's foremost climate scientist, said as he was speaking this morning, said, if we go ahead and begin tapping these unconventional energy sources of which the tar sands are the biggest example, it is, and here I quote, essentially game over for the climate. Stopping Keystone wouldn't necessarily forestall global climate change in and of itself, but it was an easy potential win. You only had to convince one person, the President of the United States, to stop it, and it could become a jumping off point to all kinds of other climate organizing. Some big foundations like the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and Tides helped fund anti-tar sands campaigns. And because of that, Canadian politicians like former cabinet minister Joe Oliver or Jason Kenney began to claim that any opposition within the country to the oil sands was ginned up by shady foreign radicals. There's significant domestic opposition. It would be there anyway. But it absolutely got a big boost from the fact that suddenly the entire you know, American climate, climate change activist community decided that pipeline is going to be our, you know, our, our rallying point. And from then on, pipelines in general became rallying points. And here we are, you know, uh, 10 years later, and, and, and all we do is argue about pipelines. Rallies were held in cities across North America to stop the pipeline, and there was mass civil disobedience. Environmentalists had finally found an opponent to rally around in their fight against climate change. The oil patch was taken aback. They'd never faced this kind of sustained international opposition before. People in the oil sands began to believe that the rest of the country wasn't supporting them enough through this fight, especially after other pipeline projects were turfed. Many Albertans found it infuriating that while the tar sands were being opposed, the U.S. was producing millions of new barrels of oil through fracking. The global oil price collapsed and Alberta went into recession and Western alienation was once again resurgent. When Mary Janigan was watching the recent Alberta election, she was seeing the same old story over resource control playing out. It reminded me a lot of what was said a hundred years before. And West, some Westerners, like Jason Kenney, know this history. I think it's getting worse. If you look at the amount of the vote that the United Conservative Party took, that's a major chunk of voters. They're protesting their economic conditions, but they're also being motivated by a notion that they have been disrespected. And that, I think, is an even stronger emotion, feeling, motivator, than simply economically I'm not doing this well. It is seen as basic disrespect. It's too bad. It's the traditional quandary of a federal government to try and deal with these resentments. I don't think this has been dealt with as well as it should be. That resentment, that alienation, has been baked into Canada for a long time. But the debates around the oil patch have kicked them into high gear once again. According to Chris Turner, the battle over the oil sands is a fight between two competing worldviews. The 
high modern worldview of oil is extraordinarily important and it's an enormous global industry and it's incredibly technically complex and we're doing our best uh, on the one side and then on the other side this sort of Anthropocene climate change argument of this needs to stop as soon as possible and the reason is because you know even if any one project can't be said to be the make or break point we're nearing kind of a global make or break point and we have to take a stand somewhere and so those two things just never really met in anything like a reasonable uh, kind of conversation. We're well past the point of coming to any kind of national consensus on this patch of land in northeastern Alberta. The kind of the polarization around the issue happened around you know, 2012 or so with Harper in power and this very much, you know, um, you know, our, our way or the highway. We're going to do whatever the hell we want. We don't care about climate change. Um, environmentalists are a bunch of foreign radicals and, and hate you know, hate the country and, and, and hate, you know, hate success and whatever. It was going to be very, very hard to get everyone back from from those trenches. There is no short, immediate solution to the problem. Uh, we already produce three million barrels of oil a day. All of that production is, you know, bought and paid for and sort of a global long-term collapse in oil prices. It's not going anywhere. For better or worse, the tar sands and the arguments and anger that surround them are here to stay. Most political watchers don't think Jason Kenney's aggressive stance will change the facts on the ground. But sometimes, it just feels good to tell the eastern bastards off. Later this season on Commons... Crude oil wasn't supposed to explode until it started exploding. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Mary Janigan and Chris Turner. Please check out their books, Let the Eastern Bastards Freeze in the Dark and The Patch. They're both excellent. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CanadaLandCommons, that's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, arshi at CanadaLandShow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley and Kevin Sexton. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand.